0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Engineer podcast. We've moved from Miami back to New York for the summer and have an awesome lineup of guests to talk about technology, AI, engineering used in hedge funds, prop trading, asset management, and really going behind the scenes on what the best technology looks like and how it's used for various different types of asset managers. So today we have an awesome guest. His name is Thomas Lee, the co-founder of Delupa, where they're building some of the highest quality analytics and AI machine learning behind fundamental investor data. Uh, So super excited to have him on the show. Uh, Thomas, how's it going? Good. Thanks for uh, having me, Michael. Yeah, of course. Um, So one of the things I love to have a lot of the guests uh, start with is walk through their background because like they're now in these really successful places where they've probably gone through a a long journey that's taken some twists and turns along the way. Uh, And I'm sure you have a similar type of story. So like, how did you get to the point where you're building like a world-class piece of software that models out fundamental data, like from the people that I've talked to about as good as anybody else on the street, you can't learn that overnight. Um, So like walk me back. Through your journey in finance, technology, asset management,
1: yeah. So um, you know, like like a lot of other founders out there, um, the the idea behind the loop really started as a problem. You know, when I was an analyst. So out of college, uh, I my first job was working at Point Seventy um, Two, and you know the firm the firm teaches you a lot of how to invest, how to model, how to be smart around you know your various. Um, various ways to think about a business. Uh, but one of the things that uh, everyone is extremely particular about is building extremely detailed, extremely accurate models. Um, and the only way you actually can get it done well is to do it by hand, right? So if you're a fundamental analyst, you are reading 10Qs, 10 10Ks, 10 investor research reports, DAX, and you're just grinding through them, grabbing the numbers, putting them into Excel, double-checking it, make sure it, making sure it's right. And, you know, like, I want to say that's, that's definitely something that happened at where I work, but it's also something that happens all across Wall Street. You know, it's not unique that people work hard to get the right numbers. You know, hopefully everybody is doing that. And, uh, you know, over the years, it, it became apparent that this is something that's done so much by everybody. Um, and it's hard for people to do it right. So why don't we create a system that centralizes all of those problems? So you have a single golden set database for historical fundamentals. And if you build that, then theoretically, you could license that database to customers um, who are the asset managers, the banks and, and so on, um, and improve the level of quality of fundamental data that people get access to and decrease the total costs um, it takes to access the data. Because when you when you think about the job of an analyst or a PM, You are actually not hired to do data entry, right? Like the idea is you are hired to generate returns, to generate ideas, to create velocity in the portfolio. Uh, The last thing you actually want to be doing is to be spending precious time sitting there, just scrubbing your numbers, cleaning up your Excel sheets. It's part of the job, unfortunately, but it's it's not what makes you a good analyst, right? It's just a foundational layer. And so what we're trying to do at the Lupa is to say, let's create a level of infrastructure such that we can actually make that layer go away, right? Everyone gets access to the same ultra high quality level of data so that you can go do the job of analysis, go do the job of comparables um, on your own without having to worry about the data. So that's, that was sort of like the backstory. Totally, love that. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate
0: is the world of a discretionary manager like when i came into like high end hedge funds i was assuming everything is done by a computer there's an algorithm that makes every trading decision and there are cases where there's stat arb systematic books that trade that way but a significant amount of global volume in equity markets is still done by human beings doing the deep research deep fundamental modeling and finding out different ways to do i don't know relative valuation and That requires like a tremendous amount of just human grinding. And a lot of it's done with an Excel spreadsheets that as a software engineer, you're coming from a world writing like C++, Python code, like everything's in code. And then you see this world of tremendous complexity in Excel still existing in 2023 and people making money from it. I think that was like almost the most interesting part is like there still is a tremendous amount of alpha in grinding, knowing your coverage, knowing, having deep domain expertise that for me, it took me a while to appreciate. Uh, like what was like when you were an analyst, what was your coverage? Like how did you get into the world of uh, finance, investing, analyst coverage, PM stuff?
1: Yeah. So when I started as an analyst, um, my coverage primarily was payment companies um, like your Visas, MasterCards First status of the world uh, and hardware companies. So Cisco Arista, they're kind of very different types of uh, animals, but that was the coverage that I was that I was tossed to look at. And um, and you are absolutely right, right? Like the way you maintain a coverage to my best knowledge at most hedge funds is using Excel spreadsheets, right? It seems archaic to a lot of people from the outside looking in and be- because Excel is seen as this like really old piece of technology. Like very few people build tools on top of Excel. Like why would you use it? But the reality is it works and it works phenomenally well. It's an incredible piece of tech. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. And um, sure, there are better systems um, out there for other use cases, but in the world of financial modeling, Excel is the language that people speak, right? It's not just a software anymore. It is seen as like a language. If you send me your Excel file, I can very quickly go through and understand your thought process behind how that business operates. Right? I can very quickly find margins and compute incremental margins and have a sense and flavor of what, how things are moving. So when we first started um, the business, I remember um, saying, you know, our data should be delivered in Excel. And when when you speak to uh, like venture capital investors, one of the most common pushback is like, why would you deliver data in Excel, right? Like we live in a world where Excel is supposed to be displaced and you have access to data frames and databases and APIs and whatnot. Like Excel shouldn't be a preferred method of delivery. The reality is we deliver in whatever mechanism the customers are used to. And the mechanism that our customers are used to is Excel, and it will probably likely continue to be Excel for a long time. Totally, and like Excel is evolving though. At the same time, um,
0: like there, like you can now, for example, add in an embedded DOM document object document object model, almost like a Chrome web app into Excel, and have it interact with Excel in the same way that you might have a traditional VBA code. Microsoft has done some awesome work on that. Yeah. Like there's also some really interesting stuff going on in embedding Python and Excel to have this interoperability. There's always been like third-party tools, but Microsoft has done like a lot of really good work on building out their data science type offering that integrate with Excel um, that I'm super excited for. And like now that you see like open AI being embedded into Microsoft Azure, and you have all these clients that have their internal IP, whether it's an Excel, Outlook, being stored on Office 365 inherently means that data is already in the cloud. And being able to do training on top of it or just in context learning with some of the open AI models allows IP to remain in Excel, but you start getting some of the benefits of a lot of different technologies that have evolved as that integration continues to get better. So like I personally, if you were to say like, what do I think is... Off the top of the head, best like technology software platform that's enabled a lot of people to interact with information uh, that gets translated down to uh,
1: machine code. Like Excel is like at the top of that list. Yeah, I think even, even when you look at like really fancy use cases in a lot of like software engineers world, like they don't want to admit it, but they still use a lot of Excel. Like it's just works. T- totally. Like you copy
0: paste it. You look at the data that's actually there. And if you want to, you can roll it up, do relatively quick analytics.
1: Yeah. Because it's not every day that you're dealing with like a hundred million row database that you need, like state of the art database, like technology. You don't. Sometimes it's just 25 rows, right? The spreadsheet is better
0: at 25 rows. Totally. And like still, like you might do an aggregation, condense a hundred million row database or larger down into like, what are your heuristics with a group by that could be like, distributed to get to that point, but then you might dump it out and then do some different iteration with it. Excel is a great landing place for that. Yeah. Um, so I guess like with, with the like you guys have this pretty incredible taxonomy on how you think about the way that fundamental data is structured, organized, like and for somebody that hasn't necessarily gone into that world and gone through some of the complexities of these spreadsheets, they're incredibly detailed. It's not just gap APIs. It's also these non GAP APIs that are going to be sector specific, company specific, the way that they think about their financials and communicate that to investors, and the way that investors will over time focus on different little tidbits where they might be focusing on profitability and margin metrics now. Whereas when money was cheap last year, they're focusing on growth. And what are the sectors of the company that growth really matters? It's going to be, very, there's just a lot of complexity in terms of this financial operational data. A lot of people spend a lot of time trying to wrangle it. You guys done an awesome job on that. Like, how do you guys get such a good taxonomy and data model that you'd
1: understand actuals as well as you do? Yeah, so um, if, if you think about the spectrum of data in general, um, there, there there exists basically a mutually exclusive relationship between taxonomy and detail. So what I mean by that is, if you want to collect every single data point that has ever been disclosed, um, you actually cannot build a good taxonomy. And what a taxonomy does is it allows you to compare data across companies. So philosophically, you have to decide, do I want to build a taxonomy or do I want to build accuracy? So what we have at Delupa, in terms of a taxonomy is actually not the comparable taxonomy, but the accurate one. So what we said is Delupa will be the perfect messengers of publicly available data, right? So we, we do not treat the data to be comparable across other platforms. So a lot of data vendors out there start with the philosophy of saying, we're gonna build a taxonomy. We're gonna create data frames where you can take company A and compare it with company B and compare it with company C. And it might not be perfect apples to apples comparison, but I'll try to make it happen for our user, right? I'll try to create an analytics layer on top of the data. At DeLupa, we say, nope, our users are some of the best data people in the world. They can do that on their own, what they want, is the perfect set, the perfect messenger of the company. And so that's that's the responsibility of the Lupa. So w- once you have that philosophy, um, you've already set yourself apart from the rest of the space because everyone wants to build a taxonomy and we're out there saying, we're not building a taxonomy. We're just gonna get you the data. Um, then the next question is thinking through how do you become a perfect messenger? Because companies are trying to disclose data but they're not trying to disclose data in the most readable format, a machine-readable format, right? Because that's just not that's just not part of anyone's responsibility set in an IR department. So what you see they tend to do is for gap gap disclosures, you know, there is a gap form like the AK or the 10Q and whatnot, and you basically put it in like tables and you disclose it. That's all well and good. Um, but the KPIs and the adjustments become more dicey, right? KPIs tend to be everywhere. It could be in a footnote, they could be in a chart, they could be in sentences, in management discussion and analysis, it could be really anywhere. And adjustments are truly everywhere, right? Sometimes a company says, oh, gross margins are two points higher because of pricing. Um, or, you know, gross margins were two, one point lower because of some MA impact that will not recur again. And that would just be in a, you know, line four of slide nine of the analyst stack that you have to pick out. So what we've done at Zalupa is we've trained independent data models. Um, uh, most of these are ML and AI driven on the backend, where we say, for some of these tables, they're simple to collect. Let's go cl- collect them uh, with a simple model. For some of these, you need like really sophisticated technology to go tease out and we will use that. But ultimately what we've also said is our customers, what they really care about is high quality. They don't care about the name of the algorithm that you're running. They don't care about how many algorithms you're running. So long as it's complete, it's accurate, it's precise, and it's updated quickly. So we have a layer where we have our own fundamental analysts who would then take the data output from the machine and verify if it's right or wrong, right? And they will then make a judgment call and feed back into the machine that, look, this is right, that's wrong. This is right, that's wrong. Over time, it makes the system of collection better and better. Um, over time, they become better and better analysts. So they're better at, better at doing this task. And then they can become specialized into a particular sector. So they become faster at doing so. Um, And what it ultimately creates is just a cleaner database that updates faster. Love that. And not to push back on
0: just focusing on the company-specific data and not creating these generalized taxonomies, but... If you're just focusing the company-specific data, that then implies that somebody is doing this relative valuation, relative comparison across names and a coverage, because that's ultimately how you would monetize this data is by being able to figure out what names are relatively under or overvalued relative to a coverage universe. And so, are you then like kind of putting that on the analyst or like the individual fund to figure out what is your processy? that you think is going to be best to be able to do this relative comparison and that is where your alpha is? Um, or do you think that there's another layer of translation that happens either via like some best practices or like a specific service that can potentially sit on top of it to translate this data
1: and um, create returns? Yeah, so the way, philosophically, I th- my personal belief is alpha today is beta tomorrow and beta today was alpha yesterday, right? So if you rewind the clock and look at technology, there was a point in time where having access to a digital document that a company was reporting is alpha because everybody else was receiving uh, data in the newspaper, you could just be faster, right? Having the right feed of market prices was alpha because if someone else is reading off a ticker tape and you are reading off a screen, then you are just gonna be faster. Today, reading of stock prices off the screen is obviously not alpha, right? Like everybody has access to the same prices. So alpha back then is now beta today. Um, Today, I would argue that there are areas where taxonomy can drive alpha and there are areas where taxonomy has really become beta. So one example is um, if you look at software investors, what software investors have done a very good job at collectively is that they have aligned on a couple of metrics that, basically permeate the entire software sector, right? So if you think about like a, um, annual recurring revenue ARR or account value ACV, um, even like rule of 40, there's all these terminology that was created that allows you to compare across companies and allow you to basically rank companies, right? You can rank everybody from ARR growth rates to you know employee count and so on. Um, and a lot of sectors haven't really had that. Uh, level of uh, harmonization of the data. So for those sectors that have the data pre-harmonized by the community, um, those are sectors that we will look into building taxonomy. So today, uh, you can actually come onto Delupa and you can grab a software sheet that has AR for every software company, gross margins, adjusted gross margins, stock-based comp, and all that stuff, right? That taxonomy is available for software because wow, that was someone's alpha five years ago, this is table sticks today. Um, but if you look at some other sectors where it is not as common to find these permeating KPIs, uh, we leave that to the analysts. Over time, obviously, those um, taxonomies will will float up to the surface, and we'll be able to say we're just going to build it again, and we'll just democratize it for everybody else.
0: Love that! Like, interesting question. And I don't know if it's more like meta, but as a founder, you always want to be early, but not too early and when you're thinking about opportunities that you might have to start defining a taxonomy that is already well understood by insiders that people really cover this name but the general market doesn't necessarily have access to it when do you think about being forward looking and saying like oh like maybe we could go into industrials within like uh, a specific subsector you could just go into semis or you could go into energy healthcare companies that have these similar types of taxonomies you could almost be market defining when you start issuing these industry wide taxonomies versus, like, hey, like we're really good at just doing data company specific and we'll allow that alpha to turn into beta over time and we'll just continue to be a really profitable, really successful company in the interim.
1: Um, does that like ring true to you at all? Yeah, it does. And um so industrial and semis is a good is a good way to think about it because if you look at the software landscape a lot of the kpis that are disclosed are not directly tied to a gap metric if you will right if you think about an accounting metric um like acv is not directly tied to revenue because if you don't really know the number of customers which are rarely disclosed you are never going to be able to tie back into revenue in an accurate way Um, But if you look at, say, like in the semis world, the type of metrics that people tend to care about um, are more specific to the company. Um, And the companies, like if they disclose like number of bids or number of wafers, like without knowing the type of wafer or the type of bid, it's really not that comparable across semi companies. So what people end up doing is they say, okay, let's just compare gross margins. Let's compare the percentage of the inventory that is working. There's work in progress versus percentage of inventory that is, you know, um, that's ready. That's ready to start. I forget the term for it. Um, so I think in industries where there is no permeating taxonomy yet, or the permeating taxonomy is starting to to appear, uh, what we do is we say we will this we will build on uh, taxonomy for what people use today, right? Because that's quote unquote beta. What everybody appreciates, everybody appreciates the power of Gross margins and cap, like cash capex in the semis world, will have that, right? But but until the point where you know we have a good sense of the KPIs to drive into it, we're just simply not going to be able to provide that because our philosophy is again perfect messengers of the company's data. We don't want to create comparisons or to derive comparisons, like derive KPIs that a company doesn't actually create right? Every single data point we have in our database, with no exception, every single data point is directly sourced to the company's filings. We have, we make uh, absolutely sure of that. So probably our, our number one most used feature is the fact that you can click on a number in the Looper library and immediately pull up the source, right? It just shows you the document, shows you where it's from. And that's one of our guarantees to all of our customers, which is you will never find a number that we just put in there and there's no you have no idea where it's from. That's awesome. And like that data lineage is a hard problem in general, right?
0: Like data, you see a number on a spreadsheet, you see a number on a presentation and being able to trace that back to its original source. That's hard to do. It's very hard, yeah. In just general. And then doing that in financial services, like that's, that's, again, a very difficult problem. Something that people don't even think about until somebody says, oh, where'd you get this number from? You're like, oh, we actually have no idea. And then it becomes this massive initiative if you do that internally. But data lineage, super hard problem. Um, So what's like, when you're starting to build this company, how do you think about like the journey to get where you are now relative to where you were? It sounds like you started in 2019. Yep. Did you take a lot of twists and turns to end up where you are now? Is where you are now where you
1: expected to be? And like, what did that path go? And talk more from like a, a founder seat. Yeah. I mean, we had so many, we ran into so many walls um, in that process because, um, Starting, so Delupa is a data subscription business, right? Our customers are not subscribing to software. They're just subscribing to data. For the most part, they're subscribing to capabilities within Excel and data within Excel. Um, and when you have, when you're building a data business, one of the key differences <clears throat> between the data and a software company is the CapEx requirement. Because to build a software company, you can build what people call an MVP, right? And with the MVP, you can start adding features, capabilities, UAGs, and so on. A lot of software um, is is equally as much user experience and seamlessness of user experience as it is the fundamental capabilities, right? Um, But data is different because data, there is no user experience, right? It's just numbers. So it comes down to quality and it comes down to coverage. It comes down to data quality. It comes down to data delivery speed and so on. Um, So there is no hiding in in a world of data and you need to get it right. So what you see a lot of companies do is in the absence of being able to get high quality data, you will build software platforms, you will build charting tools, you will build all sorts of uh, very nice, very very user-friendly UX-based tools, but the data problem doesn't get cracked. So at the start, we said, we're going to build data. The challenge with that statement and the naivete we had back then was we didn't really appreciate how hard it is to build a database, a database of high quality data. So we sort of ran into it. And the biggest problems that we came across were just the volume of edge cases that you come up with. Companies do all sorts of M&A, do all sorts of restatements. You have adjustments in ways that you can barely imagine possible. And we were trying to do it for thousands of public companies. And we wanted to have perfect coverage of data. And so we had to go solve each one of these edge cases. We couldn't just let them slide. And there was a lot of edge cases. You know, I think originally we thought with, you know, like childish um, naivete that this problem could be solved with, you know, a couple of months of work. I think we took almost three years to like finish up all the code, right? Train all the people required and get everything ready to go. Took a long time. I think that was the most complicated twist and turn journey just from, one edge case two to the next, two to the next, two to the next, to the next. There were just so many of them. And one of the things that, I mean, two things I actually picked up on
0: there. One was childish na- naivety, but that could be a problem when you're taking on more than you can actually chew, but it also allows you to go in with a level of optimism. That allows you to try problems that if you actually know the size and scope of it, you might not go into at the beginning. So, like keeping like a, in my experience, keeping a childish like perspective and relatively naive view of the world can actually be a really empowering tool to go after problems that other people are afraid of. Little kids aren't afraid when they're going to like the edge of a cliff, like, oh, I can just walk over. Now you don't want to walk over the cliff, but like you go in, you look around, you're like, oh, there's a little path actually down here. The adult wouldn't have even gone close to even look at the clip. So
1: yeah. figuring out the balance is, is yeah. key. I'll give, I'll give you a pretty crazy example. So um, there's this company called Taiwan Semi, right? They make all mm-hmm. of the semiconductors in our phones. Um, and they a lot of the KPIs in that company is disclosed in a PowerPoint presentation. But not only that, it's actually disclosed in a pie chart, specifically a donut pie chart. And it's very important because if you needed the what particular nanometer note revenue share of the business, um, you needed to go to that chart. And a- anyone who like actually cares about their business really cares about the breakdown because sure. there's some nanometer notes that are just far more important than the other nanometer notes. And so we looked at the chart and we were like, how are we going to actually collect this data? Like in in a scaled approach, because if they are doing it, other companies are probably doing it. And this is too important to say no to. Um, so at that point, we were like, you know what? We're just going to build a tool, like an optical recognition tool to be able to extract pie chart uh-huh, data. Uh-huh. And yeah, we pulled out all the stops. We looked into, it. We read every paper we could read about like computer vision into like that specific problem. And ultimately we built it and it works and it's pretty nice and sweet. Um, but if I had known that that was what we had signed up for going in, we'll pro- I would probably have been like, let's just not cover any company with a pie chart. Totally, totally. Uh, but now we have the ability do to- they produce view. the same pie charts on a regular basis? Uh, the colors change, but yeah, for the most part, it looks similar.
0: That's wild. New. So are, do you have a global coverage or is it- I, I was assuming it was mainly more US, even EU, but like, as you go into like APAC reporting, like you could see like a whole
1: myriad of different types of reporting styles. Yeah, we do. We have a global coverage. And the other problem we came into when we wanted to do global coverage is we-, we just assume that big companies reported in English. That was not a good assumption. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to have perfect coverage in Brazil, which fortunately we do today. But when you try to have perfect coverage in Brazil, you're like, wow, there are giant companies in Brazil that report supplementals in Portuguese. Yeah. Like, how do you solve that problem? Mm-hmm. So, now we had to go figure out like financial liter- like language translation APIs and they work for conversational, like Portuguese, but doesn't work for financial language. And then we had to go train our own. So it was like all sorts of stuff that needed to happen on the back end to cover like a few Brazilian companies. But, and that's what I mean by there were a lot of these edge cases that kept coming up. But when you ask yourself, do I want to have complete global coverage for every single data point? Do I want to build the perfect data set? If that answer continues to be yes, then you have to solve for every edge case. Yeah. You have to know Portuguese. Like the idea of having
0: to do a Canto translation of a donut chart that's just percentages of different nanometer sales and then translate that into the reporting KPI that they may be reporting in English or in Canto, it's going to be for the segment of their business associated to uh, chip sales. They may have like a total other reporting number. like the complexity there's wild that's awesome that's like yeah. and there's a lot just like there's been a lot of people that have tried to solve this problem with massive teams in offshore uh countries that like cannot be able to like stitch the needle to sew all this together so
1: like that's that's just that's a hard undertaking to solve that's awesome yeah. it's just focus right if you if you tell yourself i want to build this golden set database like i actually want to own it you're going to say, it doesn't matter how hard every single edge case is, I'm going to solve them all. Uh, I think the comforting thing to to know is there is a finite amount of public companies. There is a finite amount of public disclosures that you can go through. So there is an end that you can say, I have accomplished my goal. And the beauty of data is, you know, if it's right or wrong, right? You can test it. Mm-hmm right so you can evaluate yourself at every step of the way if you have achieved what you've set out to achieve you can create milestones and success criteria for yourself and you can work your way through it. and upon achieving those milestones you can say i've solved this therefore i can solve the next one too mm-hmm. right so it's reassuring to know that you can keep going keep going and at some point once you have enough momentum you're not going to stop right the next problem that comes up is is more fun and challenging than it is like i don't know if this is possible it's possible you're just going to have to figure it out love that
0: Another thing that I was going to touch on that you'd mentioned earlier, and it was about user experience versus data experience. And I actually would push back because I think that a lot of times data experience is critical and one of the last things that an organization is actually thinking about. So um, if you are on the asset manager side, one component of the data that you're dealing with, especially let's say you're a discretionary long short hedge fund, um, one component of data that you have is your financials, fundamentals, these underlying income statement, cash flow, balance sheet um, data points. But you also have like, what are our current positions? Um, what are our historical performances? What are our risk metrics? Like what is the our risk exposures? What, um, what do we have from other alternative data sources? And like there's various people in risk functions, in data science functions, portfolio construction functions, analyst functions. But oftentimes I have to join a lot of these disparate data sources together in order to come to a, uh, in order to solve the problems of their job, whether that's constructing a portfolio, determining what your risk exposure is, and so, like from the organizational perspective, data experience is critical, um, and it's a hard problem to solve. And I think a lot of times, like just using the term data experience from the organizational perspective, that has to consume the loop of data versus your PMS OMS data sources relative to like your general ledger, your risk exposures, you have all this world of data as an asset manager and having good interfaces so that different people that need to consume different sources to to solve their um, their own internal problems is critical and thinking about data experience thing is is actually a really
1: healthy uh thing to do internally. Yeah, so you're you're right. So there's user experience and there's data experience, right? User experience is like number of mouse clicks, um, the color shade, like how seamless is the flow and everything. And that's super relevant for a lot of software companies. Um, but for data exp- companies, the data experience matters, which is how easy is it for my databases to work with each other? Um, or something simple like for data analysts understand is, will my Excel crash? Right? One of the worst things you can do in Excel is to have way too many vendors providing KPIs into one sheet like providing their calcs into one sheet and now your Excel doesn't even open, right? It doesn't matter how good your data is. If my Excel can't open, like nothing works. Um, and sometimes you see cases where, and this is something that we we spend a lot of time on, which is we provide data to our customers, but behind every data point is a whole litany of metadata, right? Without the metadata, we can't get the data, right? I need to know at exactly what pixel in what page of which, which document that data point came from for every data point. That's metadata. Right? I need to know the unit of every data point. I need to know if this is a three-month number, a six-month number, a point-in-time number. I need to know the currency. Like, There's all sorts of information around the data that's important because ultimately you need to deliver the data to the customer in a way that in a split second, they can internalize all that metadata. Right. So one, one good example is when you deliver data to a customer in millions and every single number in the pages in millions, all you need to do is to highlight the fact that at the very top that it's in millions, and someone who's a financial analyst immediately internalizes that. But if you were to deliver data in millions as like thousands and then millions, and then you know actual like the actual number and the units are all messed up, uh, that's a horrible experience. Even though your data is technically 100 percent right, that's a horrible experience for the customer, right? Uh, when we update, one of the things we do for our customers is we update their models for them. Um, you and I could have the same model for Amazon, but we could run it in different units, right? I could run it in billions and you could run it in millions and we'll have the entirely same historical numbers. But if I would update my model with the Lupa, I would expect it to update in my units, and you would expect it to update in your mm-hmm. units. And the company might be reporting in a totally different unit. And what it matters is we understand that people don't want to convert units, so we'll update in your unit for you, right? Like. Our AI will actually understand your unit, your structure, your calcs and everything and update into your, your format and structure. Because again, our job is to do the plumbing, right? We take care of the quality of the data, the format and all of that. So you can take care of the investment. Um, so the experience of using the data has to be seamless. Mm-hmm. W- one of the things I'm just listening to you talk and
0: you understand the problem of your customers, the analyst associates that is grinding Excel, the PM that's constructing their models into portfolios, as well as like any founder that I've talked to when they're trying to solve a problem for their previous selves. But then you have to go and now you're a data company. You're working with a lot of engineers, software developers, and that context that exists in your mind of what good looks like needs to be translated to people that have never actually sat in the seat of their customers. And that translation and creating that context for like a software team, an engineering team, or even just a data scientist is critical to the success of a company being able to solve the problems of their customer base. And these are relatively esoteric problems. Like, how do you think about providing context to your team in the, the engineer, software developers, data scientists, um, machine learning engineers, so they really are solving the right problem and not necessarily getting lost on something that the PM or their end customer no, might not really
1: think is important. Yeah, so I think I think you can use an old management framework to think about this. And this is how we think about it, which is the OKR framework, right? You have an objective and you have key results. So imagine, you know, we are trying to fight a battle, right? And we need to go conquer a hill. And conquering this hill in our world is extremely high quality data. Um, but the people might not appreciate what extremely high quality data is. They might think extremely high quality data is 99%. In my world, 99% accuracy means I don't have a business. right? It's not even close to what uh, my customers need. And most engineers who've worked in the data space think 99 is a very good number because in almost every use case, 99% accuracy out of a system is is incredible. Um, But so what we need to do is we need to say, okay, the first step is to first make sure everybody understands that this hill is actually really, really high because we need 99.99% accuracy for us to even have a sellable product. Um, Once people understand that, then we take them to, okay, let's get to 99% first. Let's find a way, a system to triage out all the issues and explain along the way. And a lot of this is very human, which is a constant explanation along the way why it's so important that data needs to be accurate and like living, actually living by it. So. Right now, we're working on a system where it will dramatically reduce the amount of time to update our customer models, right? We want to be able to update um, basically three statements in, in literal seconds. So we, so the objective, right? This is the objective to the team. I want my customers' models to be updated before the AK loads into their computer screen, right? Is it possible? It's possible. But there are a lot of edge cases, and we have to solve for these edge cases. And... It's very tempting to say, hey, we've solved for most of these cases. Let's launch the product, move fast, break things. If it doesn't work, the customer complains, we'll go figure it out. Uh, But that's not the world we live in, right? We live in a world of hyper precision. We live in a world of mission critical data. Uh, We're not going to break our customers' models. That's not going to happen. So we're going to keep testing it and we're going to go through every edge case until we actually solve the problem. So, as tempting as it is to launch a product where 70, 80% of companies can be updated in like sub minute speeds, We're not going to launch it until we can actually get to the point where the customer goes, oh yeah, I trust these guys. I click a button and I don't worry about anything. That's the state we want to get to, right? I think about it like water. And I always tell my guys that I think about it like water. You never want to drink water from a tap that one out of every 50 times you grab water from is going to send you to a hospital. You would just never use the tap. It doesn't matter that 49 times it gives you perfectly clean water. You just won't touch the tap, right? That's us. Mm -hmm. Right, But instead of water, it's fundamental data. But ultimately, it's the same idea. It's the same asset for everybody, and it has to be clean every single time you use it. I love that. And you said
0: something nuanced there that I really appreciated, is that you didn't say you want to get uh, a 10K or a 10Q updated as soon as it comes out. You said an 8K. You want to get a restatement updated as soon as it comes out, like a company disclosure when there's like unexpectedly coming it could have come at any time like that's what you want to beat to even get that document uploaded. which i think that is a bar to set that's an incredibly high bar to set for the team
1: yeah well to be fair i think about that in the right way to be fair earnings releases are a case too so so generally there are basically three types of a case um one type is just an earnings release so a company will file um, financial data for earnings on an AK, specifically the supplementals of an AK, then they will file the 10 Q. Um the 10 right, q right, right, adds right. more data to the AK, but the AK will have a lot of the important KPIs in the 10 Q. So the 10 Q will duplicate a lot of the AK and add more data. Uh, so that's AK type one. The type two type of AK is what you just described, which is um something that, you know, is out of the blue, right? They're just like I'm restating something, here you go. And the last type of AK are just like non-relevant ones. AK is just a catch-all term for a company putting out a statement. So they could put out an earnings statement. They could say, oh, we are excited about a partnership with another company and we're looking forward to that. Or they could say, oh, crap, we need to restate something, right? We messed something up. Like, here's the restate of numbers. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Well, and I, I guess I was thinking that sometimes the most interesting data is released through an unexpected AK yeah. that is moving the market when you're not expecting it to. And yeah. we'll there's to. nobody that's able to get a unannounced disclosure updated into their model before it actually hits the screen. Um yeah, and like that is like that, that's I mean that's I love that as a bar. Um So like what other question that I guess I have is that um data is oftentimes, like, data's never been more valued. Like, you look at Reddit starting to increase the cost of their APIs, Twitter doing the same thing. A lot of companies just aren't even exposing their internal data to the outside world because they realize that the value that having a unique data product um, has right now has never been higher. And you guys have this incredibly unique data product with company-specific financials and KPIs. And the way that people assume it's going to be monetized is via some type of AI product on top of it. How do you think about the way that you use AI, one, to make the product better, but also to create potential user experiences, data experiences on top
1: of what you already have? Yeah. So so there's a big can of worms here. Um, But let's talk about how we use AI and how we plan to use AI. Um, So we've used AI for a while, right? You cannot do uh, what we do today without AI um, at the level of accuracy, the level of completeness, the size, the scale of the database is simply not possible to do with just humans. Um, if it was possible to do with just people, I wouldn't be sitting here today because, you know, the incumbents would have done it right. The market wouldn't have existed for me. Um, so I think what, what some of the material things about AI that has hugely benefited us. Is the ability for us to say there are some tasks that you simply can automate away and you should automate those away. But there are not, not every task can be automated away. A lot of the tasks has to actually still have a human layer of validation. Maybe not the entire extraction process needs to be done by a human, but the human automation layer is required. And that layer um, can be done by a human. But if you can get 95% of the work done by an AI, that dramatically reduces. The cost of what we call a search function, right? Like now, I don't have to go find the KPIs. The AI can find the KPI. The human can validate if it's plus five or net or minus five, right? That's what humans are good at. AI's will have a tendency to make make those errors. Um, so that's how you can leverage it. The other thing you can leverage AI is this concept of linear time. Um, humans have to operate in linear time, right? We are sequential beings, so. If given 10 tasks, we do one task at a time until we hit task 10. Uh, For a very long time in software engineering, uh, processing is done in linear time too. But what what new systems and new algorithms of AI has basically enabled us to do, and very loosely speaking, is you're able to do a lot of tasks in one unit time by basically parallelizing the compute. Um, And that's one of the key key things like transformers, which is the T in GPT, has allowed us to do, which is you can get a lot of training done. You can get a lot of compute input and output done in a smaller unit of time if you throw more compute at a problem. Um, So you can train with a much larger data set. You can train much more times to get to a a much higher degree of accuracy, which for businesses like us is hugely beneficial. Um, But our philosophy is to provide super high quality data to our customers. Right, Water. We're providing water. Um, but going down, go, going going forward, what we want to do is we want to also understand how we can use AI to deliver the product. So the way I think about a data business ultimately is there's two sides to it. You have the data and the data has to be right and you have the delivery mechanism. So Diluba today has very, very good data, but for all intents and purposes, we don't have a delivery mechanism we are borrowing the user experience from Microsoft Excel to deliver the data. And fortunately for us, our customers love Microsoft Excel, so that becomes a good delivery mechanism. But as we scale the business, as we expand, there are sets of customers who don't use Microsoft Excel. There are sets of customers who are used to Python, who are on Google Sheets, um, who are on all sorts of different platforms where they would prefer to just let me log into something on my browser let me get access to the data i want a bi tool i want a chart tool i want in two clicks of a button to be able to f- see like ARR for every software company sort ranked in three clicks of a button i want to see same store sales for every single restaurant in the world sort ranked right um we have the data for it but we don't have the ux for it today and what we are seeing in you know in huge um, improvements today is the ability to use Basically GPT type functionality to generate the delivery mechanism. So AI has definitely worked for us in um, the collection of the data, solving the data problem. Uh, what we're trying to really understand is how to use AI to deliver the data. Uh, and there's there's been so much um there's been so much research that's being provided today just on the little, little things like generating a chart, for instance, or generating a pie, pie graph. And that's been huge because the cost of building a library that charts out data in the database is non-trivial, especially a database as as detailed and as accurate as ours. It becomes really, really complex. Um, and today, fortunately, you have you know pre-trained libraries um, that you can adopt and adapt to your own database that can just generate like crazy charts. And based on our internal testing, like it works really well, but ultimately it comes down to does that deliver value to our customers, right? Um, it doesn't matter if I think something is really cool. If the customer says, that's cool, but it doesn't add value to me, it doesn't save me time, then it's not something that we're going to pursue because I will much rather spend the time, the money, the effort um, to build something that my customer cares about. What if they say, just reduce the updating time for me, I don't care about the delivery mechanism, then we're just going to reduce the updating time. Mm-hmm. Love that, right? Um, if a customer wants water, don't give them soda. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And as long as, say, hey, I want more water, give me more water. Exactly. Keep giving them more water, right? I want
0: cleaner water. I'll give you cleaner water. I'm not going to give you soda. Love it, and everybody loves water. So Thomas, uh, we're kind of wrapping up the podcast, but one thing I haven't asked yet, how did you come up with the name
1: Delupa? Yeah, so how we came up with the name tells you actually a lot about the co-founders. Um, when we were starting the company, we didn't really care about the name. So we literally randomly generated the name. And what we cared about is we said, it needs to be easily pronounced. So it needs to have a bunch of vowels in there. We need to be able to own the domain for as low of a price as possible. So we filter by domains that cost a dollar per month. And and it needed to be something where if you search into Google, we will be on page one easily. So it can't be a word that exists already or a domain that exists already. Um, So we just randomly generated words with a bunch of vowels in there until we came up with it. It took us like a total of like 30 seconds. Love that. It's kind of an interesting
0: trademark scenario where now when something's generated by AI, it's a question, can you trademark it? But what if something's purely randomly generated? Is that AI or
1: is it just a numbers game? I mean, we own the domain for it. You know, we own delupa.com delupa.ai and if you search delupa on google i'm pretty sure we're the only company that shows up because yeah. it's such a weird word so i've never really given that name that that the question of trademark a lot of thought but you know hopefully our brand is like big enough when it becomes an issue where it'll be very hard to like misappropriate that totally i think you you own delupa for the foreseeable future uh, i hope so
0: yeah. so with that thanks for coming on the podcast uh, and thanks for everyone for tuning in Uh, We're looking forward to push out a couple more episodes now that we're back in New York from Miami for for this year. So if you want to follow more, you can uh, join or you can follow on Spotify, Apple Podcast. Uh, We also have all the episodes uploaded on YouTube or follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, or join the community. Check us out at Hedgineer.io slash Slack. I'm your host, Michael Watson, and see you next time.
1: Hedgineer.